Hello, I'm Mark Griffiths from the Wrexham AFC Media team, and I'm here to answer your questions. It's the Ask Wrexham podcast, and as you know, the hashtag ASKWXM, which you can use to send messages to as well, whenever you like, but the idea is specifically on match days to ask about the game or just shoot the poop. Uh, this is the podcast where we pick up the rest of those questions and try and do them justice because we get so many on match day, it's really, really hard to keep up with them. However, Laszlo, the podcasting cat, is asleep. So, you know, we don't want to disturb him. So I'm going to try and keep the noise down a little bit. Got some good questions today. <clears throat> a lot of them revolve around the recent games against Newcastle, Tranmere. Um, so we'll have a look at these first. Eric Lobach asking about the Newcastle match. If we can't score more than one goal against an under-21 squad, would this be considered as worrisome? It's a fair question. Wrexham won 1-0, of course. Um, no, I wouldn't be worried. And in fact, I would argue, some people would disagree with me on this, but I'm right. You know I'm right. And I would argue that generally I wouldn't draw any conclusions from one game anyway. The bottom line, we won it. Now, if you look at the results over that week, the under-21 teams in that competition, some of them got passes. Some of them did pretty well as well. Um, and it's not unknown for the under-21 teams to get to the knockout stages, get through the group. So, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, like I said, I wouldn't take one game on its own to judge something. But we have seen over a number of games this season now that we are actually creating a few chances and not taking as many as maybe you'd hope. So maybe I'd look at it that way. It's a continuation of a pattern we've seen for a few games now of us playing well, being the better side, but a one-goal lead is all we manage, and that is vulnerable, as we saw at Barrow, for example. So, no, I wouldn't be too concerned by that, to be honest, because I think that you know, they were decent. They were a decent technical team. They presented us with some issues. Um, they're allowed to do that. Now then, Pamela asks... Again, about that game, why aren't the Wrexham seats full? I understand the protest against the under-21s and the EFL trophy, but that's nothing Wrexham can control, and our lads need our unconditional support. I'm disappointed. I understand, Pamela, but I, I wouldn't be disappointed. Um, <clears throat> truth is, the LDV trophy is like the FA trophy. It, it's certainly not got the, the standing of the other competitions that we're in. And traditionally, it tends to attract low, low crowds, you know, below 2,000, very often. So, yeah, I, I mean, we're dealing here with um, a midweek match. We've had a lot of home games at the start of the season. Our home schedule seems to be quite front-loaded. There's a cost-of-living crisis going on, and this is a competition which is seen as much less important. I accept the argument that, as people have been so keen to clamour for tickets... You'd think maybe this game would sell out because people who weren't able to get tickets at all might go for it. But I think a combination of the, of all the circumstances I said, plus the fact that it's a game against an under-21 team, I think have combined to make a lot of people think maybe they'll, they'll stay at home instead. Um, so I wouldn't worry about our support. <laughs> the attendances we're getting are fabulous. That's why, as you saw in the first episode of Welcome to Wrexham, how desperate everyone is to get that new stand built because we need to expand to get more fans in the ground. But I wouldn't worry too much about that. And the boycott, by the way, and for those of you who aren't aware, some fans do argue you should boycott the, that competition 
because they allow under 21s in, because allowing the under 21s in is wrong. Laszlo has arrived, so I'm going to have to uh, rearrange my table. He may make an appearance any moment. Um, well, I agree with you actually on this. I, I'm not convinced that the right way to say that we shouldn't have under 21 teams in this competition is to boycott matches because these games get small crowds anyway. You, you know, a, a meaningful protest tends to hurt somebody, doesn't it? I don't mean like you beat somebody up, but you know, it's for a protest to work, you need to genuinely cause an issue for someone who has a, is in a position to make things different. Well, A, nobody budgets for anything out of the EFL trophy. And B, you're not aiming it at the people who are responsible. And I wouldn't say it's the EFL in this case, because as I've explained on air, I would argue that the EFL have given this to the big clubs, the opportunity for them to have their under-21s in this competition, as a sop, because what the big clubs really want is to stick all their players, in, their under-21s, into the lower leagues. And that's why people protest, because that's a horrible idea. Um, so I'm not convinced that boycotting those games actually does much at all. What I would say is that, you know, the message needs to be made very, very clearly that this is not going to be allowed to be the thin end of the wedge, you know, and actually get your teams in the league too. We must make it clear that the integrity of the league competitions remains sacrosanct. Uh, I think that's very, very important. Not sure, not turning up for an LDB, uh, uh, sorry, and uh, used to be called LDB, the EFL trophy games really addresses that issue personally. Now, Cynthia Scott said, Hi, Mark. Hi, Cynthia. Looking at the EFL trophy table, some clubs are showing two points, others are showing one point for a draw. Is the table I'm looking at correct? If so, What's the reason? Yes, that table is correct, because they brought in a rather peculiar idea, just to spice things up. They kept the normal three points for a win, one point for a draw, no points for a loss. But if a game is drawn, then there's a penalty shootout at the end, and the winner of the penalty shootout gets an extra point. So let's illustrate it through that Newcastle game. We were winning, we won 1-0. Right near the end of added time, Newcastle nearly scored. If that had gone in, it would have been a one-all draw. We'd both have got one point for the draw. But then we would have had a penalty shootout, bizarrely, and then the winners would gain a bonus point. I've no objection to that as an idea, but I have got a suggestion. Because, you see, they brought three points for a win in in the 1980s, and it made a difference. The old truism used to be, if you can win your home games and draw your away games, you'll win the league making it an extra incentive to win by getting the three points because you used to have two points for a win did make, I think, football more attacking because people realised that if you win all your home games, draw your away games, you'd be dropping two-thirds of your away points. You, know, you might get into Europe, but you're not going to win the league. Um, so I think it did make things more attacking. I think they should have looked back at that precedent and said, in the AFL trophy, it's four points for a win. Two points for winning the shootout. One point for drawing and losing the shootout, and then zero if you lose. Just to re-establish that two-point advantage between the team that won the shootout and the team that actually just won the game in 90 minutes. And that gives you the incentive to go out and attack and, and win matches. So that's my personal feeling. I've not seen anyone else suggesting it, so let's be honest. It's not going to happen. Rural Detective. Oh, my word. An absolute legend of the ask back from landscape 
says, a bit of grobbler about Oconquo, very confident but a bit erratic. So Arthur Oconquo, our new keeper, who has only so far played in that um, EFL trophy match, I think that's an interesting comparison. I like the look of Oconquo. Again, as I said earlier, you don't judge players or anything really on one game. Um, but I could see a lot of good qualities in him. I mean, his size is imposing and therefore his reach is imposing. That one save he had to make, really, low to his left when Diallo cut inside and shot from 20 yards. He made it look quite straightforward because he's got such arm, long arms and legs. He can stretch and cover a big area. Um, I thought he was very good with his kicking. Had some awkward moments with his feet, though, which I think is the erratic thing. Um, but his kicking, oh, just look at that. You can see the way he clips the ball over the defence for people to run onto. And you imagine Paul Mullen fully fit running onto it. Oh, that feels nice. That sounds good. Bruce Grobler was a very famous goalkeeper in the 1980s and into the 90s. He was Liverpool's goalkeeper. It was something of a surprise when Liverpool sold their legendary goalkeeper, Ray Clements, to Tottenham. England international keeper, real literal safe pair of hands, and brought in Grobola. Grobola was a Zimbabwean. People didn't hadn't heard of him in Britain. He played a little bit at Crewe. Um, and Liverpool put him in, replaced Clemens with him, and for six months he got terrible stick because he kept coming out a long way for crosses and not making it and made mistakes, conceded goals. Liverpool started the season badly. However, he was also ludicrously agile, amazingly acrobatic, incredible to watch. Spring was remarkable. He wasn't the biggest goalkeeper ever, but my goodness, he could jump. And he made some astonishing saves. Now, Liverpool kept faith in him when the media and some fans felt, no, 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 cut our losses. Let's have an orthodox goalkeeper. He certainly was unorthodox. And Grobla went on to be one of the great successful goalkeepers in the 1980s, won the Champions League, famously... Uh, accredited with putting the Roma players off in a decisive penalty shootout in the final by wobbling his legs and looking nervous to try and freak out the Roma players. I don't know if it really plays a role or not, but it's certainly seen that way. Two of them blast off their penalties over the bar. Liverpool win. Won a lot of trophies in his times at Liverpool. Uh, what Liverpool, I think, were looking to address in bringing him in was that they knew that his acrobatic style and his quick feet and his spring meant that he was likely to dominate the penalty area and, and bring something extra to the team. And ultimately, he did do that and was successful. I think he was a very strong character and was able to just cope with the grief he got in the early stages of his local career when everybody was calling him a clown. And he stuck to his guns, kept coming for those difficult balls. And in the end, when they started to stick, he became a, a legend for the club. Now, Conquo... I, the, the, the nervousness was caused by he had a couple of heavy touches where he tried to use the ball and it wasn't his kicking was good but his actual touch to control the ball sometimes caused problems he'd have one kick charged down because of it and he also got bucked because he handled the ball outside the box in the eyes of the ref because he tried to come out of the box and dribble it back inside to pick it up um, so I think in that way it's quite an interesting comparison we haven't seen what a concourse is like on crosses yet. And let's be honest, if you're bringing a guy as big as him, you expect him to dominate in the air and to be coming for a lot of crosses and cutting out danger as its source. And we didn't see that because Newcastle are a nice, neat, young academy team. They're being coached to play in a careful passing way. They keep the ball on the floor. So 
frankly, I can't remember any actual crosses coming into the box for a Conquo to come for to show what he's made of. So I want to see that. And I want to see him worked a bit more. Obviously, I don't want this to be worked too hard in defence, but, you know, before you can properly judge him, you need to see him getting busy. But I, I, I thought it was a very good first impression that he made personally. Now then. Pamela asks, this is during the, which game was this? This was the Doncaster game, was it? Um, what just happened there? Parky got waved away and the Wrexham AFC rep was handed something by the ref. What does that mean? Well, I had to look back. I, I couldn't find it for ages. And then I found what it was. And I'm not 100% sure. I can fill parts of it in. And um, Parkinson did get waved away, but he was just moaning about something. That's what managers do. The referee had come over to the side of the pitch and Parkinson thought this was an opportunity to get in his ear a bit. And the ref just said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not bothered with that. And Parkinson retreated immediately. The other part of it, he actually gave some to the fourth official, and I can only assume, I mean, I, I, you couldn't really see what it was, I can only assume that something had been thrown onto the pitch or onto the perimeter or was left lying on the perimeter of the pitch, and the ref saw it and thought, oh, we can't leave that there, it's, you know, it's dangerous to players, so we just picked her up and brought it across. That was why he came to the side of the pitch. Um, I'm not aware of any complaints about anything, so maybe it was just, you know, after the warm-up, something was left by the side of the pitch and the referee thought, that was something which uh, needed to be moved for the safety of the players. Jamie Lightning, at what point in the season is the table considered to be a true indicator of team performance? People say we haven't settled into the season yet. Is the midpoint of the season best or before or after then? You know, I've, I've seen an awful lot of talk about this and quite understandably, I, I've taken part in this. I'll tell you what, the smart thing is to wait till the season's finished and then look back at the turning point. Um, it could happen any time at the point where, I mean, by about a third of the way through, you've probably got a good idea of which sides are up the top, which sides down the bottom. But that will change a bit. Some teams will have a strong run or collapse and things will change. And you often see teams who look perfectly safe in around Christmas time and then crack and plummet and get relegated. It can happen. Um, I think that, that we're also been talking about Wrexham settling as a team. Um, I think the fact they didn't get a huge amount of minutes in pre-season compared to normal has encouraged the talk of a slow start. Um, I thought now they're pretty much over that. In terms of see if Barton now starts settling on a more consistent 11 once he, if he feels like a lot of players have got enough minutes in their legs to be running at decent pace. But there's a lot of things to consider with that. You know, Some teams hit the ground running. I'm thinking about the side that until last season had our record total. The club which still has the record for the most points ever in an English season without getting promoted. We've got 98 points in 2012-2013. Now that team drew the first match and should have won it. It was a very late deflected equaliser. I think it was an added time, if I remember correctly. So we drew a home to Cambridge United and then we won the next seven games. So we were flying at the start then and pretty much sustained it. So it, 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 there's no hard and fast rule. You can sometimes see where something comes together. Sometimes a, a last piece of the jigsaw. I'm thinking again about promotion season, 92-93. We were, by November, still pretty much mid-table. We had the odd good results. We had some poor games. We weren't totally settled. And, and we got battered 6-1 in the FA Cup by Crew Alexandra. And Wrexham brought in, therefore, a, a midfielder. We brought a lad on loan from Sheffield United called Mike Lake. And he was superb. And something, suddenly everything clicked. He and Gareth Owen made a wonderful combination in the middle of the pitch. And suddenly we were winning hand over fist. 
So sometimes that can happen. Sometimes it never happens. And you have an horrible season where you never properly settle down. Um, I present you with our first season in the National League. And indeed, the season before that, we, got a, we had a reshuffle of the squad, brought a lot of players in. They didn't succeed. The manager was sacked, Brian Carey. Brian Little came in. He, in the first transfer window in January, reshuffled again, brought in about 13, no, it was, yeah, 13 players. Totally new team, second half of the season. Didn't work. He keeps chopping and changing formations, players. He's got lots of players at his disposal at great expense of the club. Doesn't save us from relegation. So the summer, he rips it all up and starts again. He's got another massive squad of players who had contracts still there. It still doesn't work. He gets sacked. Dean Saunders comes in. He brings in players. Yeah, and that was the pattern at the start. And it was just constant chopping and changing and seeing what works and trying this black guy here and that guy there. And sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, like we, we were caught in that cycle horribly for, a, for goodness me, a few years. It was not fun. Trust me. Be a bear beer. It's on a Tramia game. Is it typical for a team like Tramia to double up on the left in the second half to close down McLean? Yeah, teams will change their shape. If they see a problem, they may well decide to alter it. If you think about it, Rex will play with three at the back. We sort of, remember, formations is just a starting point. But we sort of have one natural wide player on either side, the two wing-backs going forward, or Barnes on the right, McLean or Mendy on the left. Well, imagine you're playing a 4-4-2 against that, you've got, which is what Trammy had switched to. Four defenders, in front of them, four midfielders, in front of them, two strikers. I'm being simplistic, but essentially they've got two players on either flank, the right back and the right winger, left back, left winger. So they can double up to try and uh, reduce the, effect, the efficacy of the wide players. Think of it, a lot of people would argue this is a good way to watch football. Look for the space on the pitch. Who is creating space on the pitch and where is it? How are they doing it and how are they exploiting it? So McLean was receiving the ball in space and was able to drive at the fullback and get past him. So Tramia responded by reducing that space by putting a wide midfielder in instead. Of course, that then means someone else has lost a player. So we had more men now in the middle of the pitch than they did. We had three central midfielders, they had two. So now we could dominate in the middle of the pitch. So we were quite happy with that. And McLean was still getting change out and defenders. So it all went fine for us. It's I, I know I've said this before. It's that wonderful Brazilian phrase about how it, when you move one player, you expose somewhere else that if you pull your blanket over your head, your feet get cold. I really like that. Okay, now next one. Again, be a bear beer. Really rooting for Walters to get a goal. Do football players get the yips? And I want to link this in with the next one because that was during the Newcastle game. And then Chris Firmston says, so what happens to Walters now is he doesn't appear on the squad list. Yes, so, yeah, Walters has been exercising my mind for a bit, <laughs> to be honest with you. Firstly, the yips. I, I, right, so for those of you who aren't aware, the yips is originally a golfing term for a player just losing his confidence and, and not being able to, to finish off, you know, sort of easy putts, a sort of psychological problem that you just can't do the basic things. Uh, I suppose that the British equivalent that I've heard most often is dartitis, players playing darts who then just feel they can't quite release it at the right time and then they lose their, their edge. 
I've never really heard people talking in quite those terms about about footballers not being able to maybe take a chance. And I wouldn't put Waters in that category. He has had two great chances to score this season and missed, but he's not been on the pitch that long. So I think to be fair to him, I think we need to see, uh, you know, if he gets a extended amount of minutes, you know, if he can actually score. I think the con- the people talk more in football about lack of confidence and a, a being signed and then not being registered the next the start of the next season would probably hit your confidence, in all honesty. He's had an opportunity and clearly hasn't done enough to convince Phil Parkinson that he's going to do what he wants him to do. Which brings us on to the idea of registration. Now then. So basically, what happens to Waters and indeed Bryce Susanna and Callum McFadgen? Well, I mean, firstly, they're not registered. So they can't play in any league games. I've seen so much speculation about what they can and can't play in. So I contacted uh, the club and I got it from Garen, Garen Parry, the horse's mouth, because he sorts everything like that. So basically, and he knows every single tiny little rule. He's amazing. So basically, um, the unregistered players can play in cup competitions. So he can play in the FA Cup. He can play in the EFL Trophy. Now, that's what I got from Geraint. The rest of it now is me talking, you know, my supposition. Okay, it's not with the basis of inside knowledge. I would sort of think it may well be possible that those three players have been spoken to in terms of whether they want to move away. Because if you're not going to get registered, you're going to have very limited opportunities until January, aren't you? Having said that, I don't know that for certain. And certainly a player like Hosanna, it might be said to him, look, you're young, you have definitely got a future. Your injuries have been an issue. We're not registering now because you've got strength and depth in the wing-backs, but we really want to use you in cup games and we will work hard with you to make sure that you are robust so you're not picking up injuries and then we'll revisit this in January. So, you know, maybe. But McFadden and Waters are older. So again, you may think they've offered them the opportunity to leave. Um, rather than waste half a season, essentially, because they say they can't play in league games. It's interesting that Waters was not registered simply because of one of the key things that my dad always used to say that, frankly, he taught me and he was right, was that players, managers buy players and then they often take too long giving them a chance and another chance and another chance to prove that their, their transfer move was right when a player isn't right for the team. So credit to Parkinson, it's quite ruthless, but he didn't sign Waters long ago. The blokes only started two games for us. No, no, he started, yeah, two games for us. Um, But he's already made a decision that there are strikers he's got in the squad who he's ahead of Waters, and he's made that, he's gone ahead of that decision. So very tough on Waters, but it does show that Parkinson is willing to make tough decisions to do what he thinks is right for the club. So, uh, yeah, really unfortunate for those players. And I, I do feel for them enormously, but, you know, they can still be in the cup competitions, I guess. Um, we can't loan them out now, unfortunately, can we? So, oh, well, just to see. It might be that Parkinson wants to loan Bickerstaff out in the second half of the season. And that might open the door for Waters, perhaps. We'll have to see. Jamie Lightning. 
Um, as the Wrexham women's season kicks off at the Rock, are there any statistics on injuries on an artificial pitch versus grass? Rob Lingson's injuries at Bromley come to mind. Right, now then. I think we answered this about six months, a year ago. Uh, I looked at the stats and, and it's really contradictory. There's no definitive scientific agreement as to whether um, artificial pitches cause more injuries or not. So I think we'll have to just take a step back from this. I you know certainly players talk about the, the sort of impact on their joints being great on an artificial pitch because there's less give in it although the more modern 4G pitches are better than what they used to play on. I think we have to take Lainton a little bit out of the equation. Let's think about the three injuries he had at Bromley on a 4G pitch. The third one, you can look at the pitch. He seemed to get his studs caught and twisted his knee, although that can happen on grass as well. But OK, so it could be that the pitch is responsible for that. The second one was a striker smashing into him and breaking his wrist, which I was shocked at the time didn't bring a greater punishment. So that's not really to do with the pitch. And then the first one, I was just terribly unfortunate. Long ball, Alaba runs after it and kicks him in, in the head with the head, well, with his knee, totally accidentally. He's miles offside. The poor linesman, because of the regulations, is told he has to leave his flag down until Alaba's played it. Um, so there was no need for that injury to ever happen. But that was nothing to do with the pitch, was it? That was a player running on trying to challenge for the ball, leans and getting there first, and then getting a horrible whack in the process. So, horrible, but not down to the pitch. So, I don't. I think the jury's out, isn't it? I, I, I think it might be argued you can get different types of injury on an artificial pitch, but whether there are more or not is, is a different question. And like I said, it seems that there's no real consensus amongst the people who do research on whether there is more of a danger on an artificial pitch or not. Jason Dean asks, is there a cap on how much added time can be given? No. Well, I suppose 45 minutes. So if you add more than 45 minutes, you look a bit suspicious, don't you? Um, no, absolutely not. This is a subject which is really exercising the football community at the moment. Um, and it's a mess, and I think it needs to be revisited quickly. Essentially, I mean, but it sort of started at the World Cup in Qatar, didn't it? Um, where the FIFA said they're clamping down on time wasting and the referees will add on everything. Now, I'm, I don't know, the, the, the reaction has been negative. People don't like having huge, unaccustomed amounts of time added on. It feels weird. In the World Cup, it sometimes felt a bit boring. The game sort of dragged on longer than it should do. Um, the players' union, FIFPRO, the universal one, and the British PFA are against it because they're saying, if you think about it, this all adds up. You know, if you bring an extra 15 minutes every match, that quickly adds up to extra games that you're playing. And the players over the course of the season are being asked to play a lot more than they should be. And I, I sympathise with that. I've heard Sid Lowe, who is excellent on the Spanish football podcast, which is also excellent, saying that they've grabbed hold of the wrong end of the problem here, which I agree with. He says that you know, referees don't really act on time-wasting because of them, I'll add it on at the end. Well, maybe you should just not allow it in the first place. It almost feels like a cheat's charter, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, all right, well, let you waste time and just add some on at the end more than usual. Yeah, it might not be enough to make up for it, the amount of time you're wasted. 
Um, and also, you know, players might be encouraged to think, yeah, I, I will waste time. I'm less likely now to get a yellow card because I'll add it on at the end and they probably won't add a love on. So, because, you know, who would side on 25 minutes and uh, or get away with it? So, yeah, I think it's a bit stupid, to be honest. I think it's sort of unsatisfactory when a game seems to be near this improvement and suddenly there's another 10 minutes left. It just feels a bit odd. I personally think the solution is book more players for time-wasting. If you're going to have a zero tolerance for time-wasting, don't say you can do it and we'll add loads of time on. Just book them. <laughs> and if that doesn't stop them, send them off. I, personally, um, I think when players start racking up suspensions, they'll soon stop. Having said that, right, the PFA are now saying there's too many games being played because essentially you have 15 minutes added to a match Every six games, you're having playing an extra game in essence, aren't you? And I agree with them on that. I don't think I think players are putting enough strain as it is with the really packed schedules. But I hope that if the IFAB, the people who make the rules, come back and say, okay, then we won't add all this extra time on. We will just be very, we'll tell referees to be very strict on issuing yellow cards. I hope the PFA then say, right, we totally are behind this because it's a way to not get players playing too many minutes because if not it's going to be hypocritical that's the other answer all the old sort of you know the old-fashioned pundits the old football voices always moan about oh i didn't have to give them a booking for that oh that's very harsh isn't it well i feel like they've got to shut up and put up if you don't want to have 15 20 minutes added onto the game then accept that people can get yellow cards for small infringements and it's not the ref's fault it's the player's fault and they have to take responsibility for that um, I, I know football fans agree with this because, you know, you've put yourself in that position. We've seen it plenty of times. Teams come into the race course, you've seen it this season. They waste time. They waste loads and loads of time. And you think, come on, ref. All right, the ref has 10 minutes on at the end. I'd rather he just keeps giving yellow cards. Tom Dory up. Get moving. And if he doesn't, if they don't, give him a yellow card. You know, but you see, a ref would get really slaughtered for giving two yellows for time wasting, both for time wasting. And that's wrong. A lot of people seem to judge referees on they have the responsibility to keep the game flowing, to not give too many yellow cards. I think that's nonsense. Surely it's the other way around. The players behave in a certain way, the referee responds. Um, you know, if a player on a yellow card decides to kick somebody, it's not the ref's fault that he gets sent off. And that's the way I sort of view it, to be honest. But I would say that's not necessarily a popular way of viewing things in Britain about football. You know, ooh, giving a couple of the other guards for time racing, ooh, that's awful, that is. You can't send a bloke off for that. What? You've done it, why not? I'm a misery, eh? Let's be honest. And then Jeff Lang with the final question. Worries me all this Mullen talk. Great player for the club, but if we have to rely on one player, we have a major problem. I'm going to go yes and no on this one, Jeff, if that's okay. Because, yeah, relying on a player too much is really, really unhealthy. I completely agree. Um, I would say Mullen's massively important. I'm wary of pushing that, that idea down the reliance road too much. We have not played as well without Mullen, and certainly we have not taken as many chances as we normally do with Mullen. But we have kept our heads well above water. We had problems in two home games. We were letting too many goals, but that, I think, is a, a, a circumstance you can explain and which has been addressed. So, 
Yeah, I, I think we need Mullin. I think he is our single most important player, and he's probably more important to this team than than any player I can remember for a long time, to be frank. But there's a lot of quality in the rest of the team, and having Fletcher come in as well gives a bit of extra quality and experience up front. So I do see your point, and I think if we do rely too much on him, it's an issue. But if he's able to recover from this and put in the rest of the season, it certainly isn't an issue. Um, that's an incredibly simplistic response to a sophisticated point, isn't it? Which seems an appropriate point for me to finish, because that pretty much sums me up. I'm simplistic, where sophistication is needed. Don't invite me to the ambassador's party and knock over the triangle of Ferrero Rocher. Indeed, it's a pyramid of Ferrero Rocher, and I've called it a triangle, because I am simplistic, but I need to be sophisticated. And on that note, I think it's time for me to stop flogging your dead horse and get out of here. Thank you all for all your questions. Please remember to do all that subscribe stuff that is so lovely. Stick some comments on or whatever. And I'll see you soon with another Ars Rexham, including my bonus penalty shootout edition. Ooh.